All right, I think we are ready to go. Welcome to our adult Sunday school class where we're trying to do modules and a module and then we'll take a break and then a new module. And the one that we've decided to do is how does God save us, which is a a much easier way of saying the order salutis, so you don't get scared off from that, which is the order of salvation. And um, last time, Pastor Steve opened up, I don't see him, he's there, uh, did a great job on uh, a predestination election, and so now we come to the gospel call or effectual calling and how that works. Uh, Turn with me to Romans chapter 9, and as you're turning, I'll just ask God's help for us. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together again to learn of you and your truth and how you save us, and we ask your blessing upon this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans 9 talks about uh, the twins, and Rebecca, she conceived these twins, and it says, though the the twins were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand not because of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend upon the man who wills, or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy." Our confession of faith, I think, is very helpful in regards to this, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, and this is just a very quick review of God's decree and predestination. In paragraph 3, it talks about, although God knoweth whatsoever may come to pass upon supposed conditions, yet he hath not decreed anything because of what he foresaw in the future. Section 3, by the decree of God, the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined and foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace, and others are left in their own sin and just condemnation to the praise of his glorious grace. That's really what Romans chapter 9 is saying Also, in section 5, it's motivated by God's uh, free grace. Those of mankind that are predestined unto life before the foundation of the world was laid is according to his eternal and immutable purpose and his secret counsel and good pleasure that he has chosen some. And, And also, all the more, out of free grace and love. And then it talks about how that number cannot be changed from what was decreed in eternity past. And then I love the qualifications. The last paragraph says, this doctrine, or the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. In other words, these are deep things. Don't be willy-nilly about just spitting them off your, your tongue. And, and that reminds me of Romans, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge 
of God. How unsearchable are your judgments? So that's just some review, right? Um, God has chosen who would be saved in eternity past. He's predestined them. He's elected them. The number cannot be changed. Uh, It's a deep doctrine. And um, now we want to come to effectual calling. Effectual calling is also called um, the eye and tulip, right? Irresistible grace, right? So that's, um, if you know the five points of Calvinism, and by the way, I don't like the five points of Calvinism. Sorry, I like the doctrine of the five points of Calvinism. I don't like attributing it to John Calvin because um, he did not come up with these points. John Calvin systematized theology in a very, very helpful way in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. But how did the five points, how, do, how were these five points developed? How did they come about? Mm-hmm. Right, so in the six, 50, 60 years after Calvin was dead, right, the Arminians basically came up with five points of error that were refuted by the canons of Dort, so those glorious doctrines of the canons of Dort, is a refuting the five points of Arminianism, and uh, that was in 1618-1619. It's a glorious document to to read. So so really you had the effectual call, I put that little diagram in the email, but you had the effectual call, the summons, which leads to regeneration, the link that enables the call to respond to the call of the summons, and then it goes next to repentance and faith, which is our response. This often happens instantaneously. It often happens at the same time. One of the errors um, that some that, that actually the Remonstrants and Arminians would say is that, that God's grace could be resisted. And in other words, we have the willpower to be able to resist God's drawing power, and that had to be refuted. So I like the term effectual grace better. Um, It's a calling, a summons. Uh, Burkhoff, in his uh, summary of Christian doctrine, says this, calling in general may be defined as a gracious act of God whereby he invites sinners to accept salvation that is offered in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's effectual. Effectual is the idea of a successful producing of an intended desire or result. And I'm going to look at really probably just one paragraph of the confession on this because I think it just sums up the whole doctrine very well. And so um, if you have one on your phone, you can turn to chapter 10. I'm going to be looking at paragraph 1. Primarily, we'll touch on two um, And so, effectual calling is those who have been predestined, right? And and notice it says, those whom God has predestined unto life. Do you see that qualifier? That takes us back to chapter 3, God's decree, his election, his predestination. So, those whom God has predestined unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and acceptable time to effectually call by his word and spirit out of a state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ 
enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away the heart of stone, giving them a heart of flesh, renewing in their wills by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so as they come most freely and being made willing by his grace. Now that that was a mouthful. I confess I wanted to have time to have like a half sheet handout with some of this, like especially that paragraph there and my little diagram, but uh, I had to stop working about 7.30 last night and so I didn't get around to that. But we're going to be referring to this. It's the effectual calling is the execution of God's plan. Now, how does he call us? It's all right here in this paragraph. Those whom he has predestined unto life, he is pleased at the appointed time to effectually call how? It's right there. By his word and spirit. Okay? It's, it's worded very carefully. Um, there's precision to this. And so it's by his word. The word of God is powerful, right? And, but the word of God, not accompanied by the Holy Spirit to breathe life into the dead sinner. So it's by word and spirit is how he effectually calls. Now, we need to discuss the, the difference between the general call, repent and believe, right? You tell a, a big crowd down at the uh, PBE or the Balboa Park or whatever, compared to those that actually repent and believe and come to Christ, right? So how would we describe that general call? Maybe I just summarized it. <laughs> okay, yeah. So it's, it's basically announcing the good news that a Savior has come, and you too can be saved. It's an invitation, as it were, um, to come and believe. We're commanded to preach the gospel to all the world. Faith comes by hearing the word, but not everyone who hears believes, right? A lot of people hear. A lot of people hear the gospel, but they don't believe. Um, The call goes out to all, right? But only those who are regenerated will believe. Um, Aaron, can you go to 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 14 and read that for us? Yes. But we ought always to give thanks to God, sorry, beloved by the Lord, that God chooses you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may be, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, the last class in this class, it's all summarized right there, right? That. Um, he has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. That's another word of, way of saying before the foundation of the world, right? And then he effectually calls through the gospel, and then there's a result that happens that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you may actually become saved. And so when I preach, I call all to come to Christ, um, and yet there are some that don't come 
But the call of God is the inward working of the Spirit, united with the powerful Word of God, and and that effectually calls in time, His perfect time. Think with me. When God created the universe, He did not experiment around and plead with the stars, stars, please shine. Sun, please be bright. No, what did He say? The divine imperative Let there be light. And there was. It's marvel of marvel. Or we can illustrate it with even Lazarus. For four days, he's in the tomb, wrapped up in bandages. No brain waves. No blood going through his his body, right? He's as dead as dead can be. But when Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, the brain waves ignite and start going again, right? The blood starts pumping through the body. And what does he do? He hobbles out uh, the best he could. And, uh, and that's the divine imperative. And that's, that's likened unto the effectual call of the Spirit. Now, look, I heard the gospel several times before I was effectually called, right? We, most of us can testify that. There may be one or two of you that say, nope, the first time I heard it, God just saved me, right? And praise God for that. But even with our own testimonies, we could say, yeah, I've heard my daughter share the gospel with me, you know, before. And, 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 and my friend, you know, was sharing this over and over. But then there comes a time when it's made effectual in time and space. And, and I like the way it says here. It's, um, yeah, at the appointed, in, he is pleased in his appointed and acceptable time. So God has a perfect time when he wants us to become saved. It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing, John 6 and verse 63. Um, Ephesians 2, 1 to 4, I think we all know it, right? You were dead in trespasses and sins. You were going after the course of this world. But verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy... Dead means dead, like Lazarus, dead. No blood, you kick it, it's not going to move, right? And that's the general call, is, is you're really talking to corpses that are dead spiritually. But we have to be faithful to the message. And the glorious thing is that when one believes, and one's truly born again, that's why baptisms are so glorious. You get to hear the testimony of how God has worked in this particular person and and when that time of real true regeneration and conversion took place. Well, by what means? Okay, so we already said he's played the acceptable time to effectually call by his word and spirit. But it goes on. Those who were dead and which by their nature unto grace and salvation in Christ. And then it says, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. Quick testimony. My brother was saved a year before me. He's a year younger than me. Um, he's like, you got to read the book of Romans. You're a heathen. We were, we were pretty bad heathen, I'll tell you. Um, and uh, read the book of Romans. I tried. I tried. I really did. And I actually read all 16 chapters, and I felt like I was picking up a, a Hebrew testament or something, and it just was so foreign to me. I couldn't put together, I couldn't tell you anything of what I read. Why? It's because my mind had not been enlightened. These are just words. 
But the next year, when I read it, oh, God effectually called and saved. It was like, how could I miss all of this stuff the first time through? It's night and day. And why is that? It's because my mind was enlightened. I'm not here to talk about me. You can put yourself in that situation. You see, by nature, men suppress the truth. They don't accept the things of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But a natural man does not accept the things of God of the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So there's a sense in which the natural man, which is another way of saying not a Christian, a non-Christian can't understand and articulate the spiritual things of God. The Shorter Catechism does a great job of summing this up. It's question 31. What is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, He does persuade and enable us to embrace Christ, freely offered to us in the Gospel. That's a shortened version of what paragraph 1 is of our confession. It has those important things in there. Who does this enlightening? Yeah, it's the Spirit of God, right? So the Spirit of God enlightens us. He makes us willing in the day of His power. Um, Otherwise, it would be easy to fall into mysticism. You need to have this experience. Well, my experience was like this. That's what yours needs to be. And all of this kind of thing. No, it's the Holy Spirit that enlightens our mind to the truth. And there is a sense, Sproul brings this out, that there is a sense in which the call of God can be resisted, but to a, a certain point, right? There is a sense in which we can resist it. How does he put it? He says it's, but only until the call becomes effectual through true regeneration, then the grace will no longer be resisted by the elect. Paul is testimony in Acts 26 uh, in his mission. He says, to open the eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and the inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So this whole language of new hearts, right? Do we literally... Take out our heart. Do we all have heart transplants? It's all figurative, metaphorical language. But when we are going our own way and we're running away from God, we're demonstrating we have hearts of stone, right? There's no feeling. There's no life. There's no affection for God. But when He gives us that heart of flesh, as we see even in Ezekiel 36, moreover, I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And so it's that new heart is metaphorically and um, combined with a new spirit and new affections, right? Now, our sinners, you know, some critics say, well, this effectual grace... That's like God just, they're, you know, that we're just all robots and, and God's just going to force us to believe, right? Have you ever heard that before? 
Yeah, we've, we've all heard that before. But according to um, really practical understanding of who God is and everything, is that true? No, thank you. <laughs> Don't everybody shout it at once. Uh, the, the, the confession states it, and actually the shorter catechism, um, shorter catechism states it. He does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. It's, it's freely set forth. Um, the confession puts it like this. They are effectually drawn to Jesus Christ the last line of the paragraph, yet so as they come most freely being made willing by His grace. It's something that we have to do. We want to do. We, we absolutely will do. But we come freely without being forced. Uh, no one is forced against their will. They don't come kicking and screaming. <laughs> you know, It's because of a changed heart. So he makes them willing in the day of his power. Um, all the, the controversy over predestination uh, throughout the centuries, really, of semi-Pelagianism and Arminianism can be settled with this question, very simply. Is conversion a sovereign work of God, the Holy Spirit working monergistically, unilateral, or is it a cooperative effort between you and God where you cast the final vote. Now that's Arminianism, right, Bob? I mean, that's like, oh no, all you got to do is just say this little prayer after me and then you'll be saved, right? It's kind of like you got to cast the final vote. Or is it really just, it's God, right? He may use means and various things, and I'm not dispersed, you know, I'm not slamming all that stuff completely, but I think what happens is you end up having a synergistic salvation model, right, where, where God's done everything he can do. Jesus died on the cross. Now it's up to you. You've got to cast a final vote, right? I mean, that's essentially what it is. Of course, the hyper-Calvinist primitive Baptist movement would say that that millions are walking around regenerate without knowing it. They just need to come into a church to hear the gospel. Some of the Dutch Reformed would actually say so much as you don't go out to share the gospel because if they're elect, they're going to come in through the doors and then they'll hear the gospel being presented by a gospel minister and thereby believe. Well, let's consider the source of the call. Um, The source of the call... Um, and paragraph 2. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man. Okay? So, what is the source of the call? It's God alone. It's not a foreknowledge. God didn't look through the quarters of time to see that that Daniel would repent and believe at some point in India in the past, like at this particular time, and so therefore he'll elect them. That's not how it works. It's not based on anything that man cooperates with. Now, there's a large section, the section I just read, if you're looking at it, where it starts nor, let me back up, so not from anything at all foreseen in man, and then this section nor from any power or agency in the creature co-working with his special grace, 
the creature being wholly passive therein, being dead in sins and trespasses. That whole section is not in the Westminster or the Savoy. It's actually added by the Baptists. And it just clarifies this monergistic salvation that goes on until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit. He is thereby enabled to answer the call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it that by no less power than by which raised up Jesus Christ from the dead. What it's saying is the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the power that regenerates each and every one of us when we become saved. Let's talk about this monergism, synergism. These are terms we don't always use. By the way, I commend monergism.org. It's a great website and resource um, to find all types of reform stuff that's there. But you got it at the root erg, E-R-G, right? And that's, that that's equals a unit of work. So mono is a type of work done by one person. Abraham was monergistically running the soundboard this morning. It wasn't anybody else back there, right? And then um, synergism, it's the Greek prefix S-Y-N, or S-U-N, depending on, on the particular word, which means together with. And so like when, for example, Ephesians 2, where we've been raised up together with Christ, that's, just, that's the prefix that's attached to the word raised up, which emphasizes our union with Christ. So synergistically, or synergism is the idea of two or more people working together. Okay, if I just got my... New, well, an Apple Watch sets the time automatically. If we had two watches, Aaron, what time you got on your watch? I'm synchronizing my watch to his. There's two people involved, right? And so those that say that we cooperate with God to be saved, monergism sees the grace of regeneration as being operative means to convert a lost sinner. Synergism is cooperative. Two or more people cooperate with grace. And that's why I love this phrase that the Baptist added, nor from any power or agency in the creature, co-working with this special grace, the creature being wholly passive therein, being dead in sins, right? And then it says, until of course he's quickened and renewed and regenerated, then we respond. As soon as new life is in us and we're raised from the dead, spiritually, right, we're able to respond. And that's why I like, I, you know, at the very beginning, the whole um, effectual calling, regeneration, God changes our heart, and repentance, so conversion, re- regeneration, and then repentance, it happens rather close together, right? A person dead in sin, held captive to sinful lust, desires, uh, he doesn't desire the gospel. God does not have uh, do 99% and leave the final percent up to the sinner, so we believe in a monergistic. And by the way, regeneration precedes faith. If we're dead, if we're Lazarus, there's no brain waves, right? We're talking spiritually, right? If we're spiritually dead, you can't respond to the gospel. God doesn't, it, you know, some get this turned around. Well, if, if you just repent and believe, then God would save you. But really, we know, right, how it works. The only way we're going to repent and believe is if we're saved, because we are sinners resisting his grace constantly. 
Any comments or questions on this so far? I can't be that clear. Mm. Well, the first three and a half years I was saved, I was not reformed, and I sort of believed that, even though there was deep down, I was kind of like, this isn't right. I was a counselor at Greg Laurie's very first uh, crusade in 1991. Uh, The church I was in had altar calls. I was one of the counselors. And finally, I just realized, maybe two and a half years, three years, that my spirit's not agreeing with this, and it's wrong. And furthermore, it's nowhere in the Bible, (laughs) Right? And so, but I do think that the stadium crusade, you know, whatever Billy Graham kind of went off towards the end or whatever, but, you know, he was basically a gospel preacher. But this idea of coming down to the field and making decisions for Christ really makes it sound like the vote is yours, right? So I do think it creates damage. I do think there's several that have, they'll point to that as uh, actually. Very, very common. You talk to somebody that's in mainline churches, and then or how do you how do you know you're saved? Oh, I filled out a card twelve years ago, or oh no, I was at this crusade. I went down to the field. No, 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 no. I don't care what you did twelve years ago that maybe made you think that you're saved, but what evidence do you have now? Like the proper answer is because Christ is alive and working in my life today, and I know that I'm saved. Right. So that's why some of us can't pinpoint the exact date. I've got a range of months. But at some point, that conversion took place. And then there was a time where you knew you were saved. But I think it's done um, much harm in our society. And that's why, uh, obviously, we want to not <laughs> give in to any of those gimmicks and tricks and numbers and that kind of thing. Any other thoughts? Jen? Yeah, and that's, that'll come out as we continue on with, we're doing, in the order of Salutis is regeneration and conversion. We're combining those because essentially they happen at the same time. But the point that we've been making here during this whole class is that we can't respond. If it wasn't for, by the power of the Spirit and by the Word of God, none of us would ever have believed. And so that has to come first. And so if I was to summarize it, regeneration precedes faith. So certainly part of the call, Jesus, repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand, right? Repent and believe. But even Jesus knew the only people that would repent and believe were those that would be effectually called by his spirit. So regeneration precedes faith. That's, if you can just remember that, you'll, you'll, you'll get it, you'll keep it straight. Will,
Good question. What verse are you on? Yes. Oh, yeah, sit down and calculate the cost. Um, I think, I'm not sure that that has to do with being, um, coming to faith in Christ, right? Because, again, you're not going to, Nobody's going to want to count the cost if they're outside of Christ. If they're not a Christian, you just want to run away from that. I don't want to deal with that at all. And so the fact that if you're willing to count the cost, and actually the heading here is discipleship tested, whoever does not carry his own cross and does not come after me cannot be my disciple. So the fact that anyone would sit down to calculate the cost is a very good indication that God is working in that person. Yeah. Good question. Yes. Sure. Yeah. And that's that's true too. Like with our evangelism, we don't it's, look, Charles Spurgeon said if all the elect had a yellow stripe down their back, I'd run around London pulling down collars to see who has a yellow stripe, and that's who I'd preach the gospel to. But that is not the way um, God has made it. That's why we, we preach to all, and we don't say, well, do you, do you know if you're elect, or are you predestined? No, we use the, those other, so you're right. We know the truth on one side of the coin, right? But the other side is we have to use terms that they're going to understand. So, and as I already said, it's resurrection power. We read this actually just this morning in our prayer meeting, looking in Ephesians 1, but what is the surpassing power of his greatness, the power towards us who believe? These are in, in accordance with the working of his strength, or the strength of his might. These are words that are just stacked. The working, the strength, his might, and then it goes on to say, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's the same power that it takes to raise a dead sinner. That's amazing to me. And then I just want to um, end with paragraph four um, states, and you know, some people that hear the outward call without the inward call are not saved. Many are called, but few are chosen. And it says, others not elected although they may be called by the ministry of the word and may have some common operations of the spirit, yet not being effectually drawn by the father, they neither will nor can truly come to Christ and therefore be saved. Now what that is saying is certainly that we do, we have seen people over the years, we all have, right? Where it's, they, be, they believe, then I mean, I, I'm a Christian, right? But then months later, a year later, they fall away, and they don't want anything more to do with the Lord. Well, Jesus knew this, and the parable of the sower is like the gateway to all the parables. This is, this is a parable. If you grasp the meaning of the parable of the sower, all the other ones will kind of make sense, and that's the reason why it's given first. It's the longest. And how, what's that parable about? The gospel seed is thrown, the general call. Isn't it beautiful? The general call, the seed is thrown. Some are snatched away, it falls on the rock, right? And it's taken away. And that's likened to be the enemy, if you look at his interpretation. Some fall on shallow soil, 
And what happens, shallow soil springs up right away. But as it's coming up above the surface, it's got nowhere for the root to go down. And so what happens, the sun comes, the sun of persecution and heat and difficulty, and it withers away. The third falls among the thorns. So it it has enough soil to put roots down. It grows, but it's entangled by all the affairs of this world, and it's choked out so that it does not bear fruit. Those are the exact words. There's some bad teachers, I haven't heard it recently, that would say, oh, but the thorny ground's still saved. It's just they didn't bear much fruit. No, it's choked out by the Word of God so that it cannot produce fruit. And Jesus said, it's fruit or the fire, right? Essentially, and all of his teaching. And so you have the good soil, which bears fruit, varying levels, but it grows up and it matures some 30, 60, and 100-fold. And so many here, they they have some, again, the language here, common operations of the Spirit. Like, wow, they're coming around a lot. They've been visiting and, you know, maybe they're, they're saved, but then something happens and they fall away and they don't want anything else to do. So that shows that they were not effectually called. So they respond to the general call. They think that they're effectually called. They walk for a short season, but ultimately they wither away. And those who do not have the gospel outside of the sphere of of Christian influence, no matter how devout and obedient a people are to their cultish beliefs, their Mormon beliefs, to be a good person, right? Jehovah's Witness, to go around, whatever, Islam, it's, there's only one way of salvation, right? Peter made it clear. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It's through Christ alone. Bob? Well, that's the synergistic. You cooperate. But, but you understood what I was saying. The mono is one, yeah. synergistics two. And so I would, the whole idea of counting the cost, taking up your cross, and, and all of that, again, somebody that's not a believer is not going to be concerned about that. So all I'm saying is that once you're saved, it, it's not like, oh, I can just ignore all those passages. No, now they become all the more relevant because it's how do we live in light of us being saved. So even you're contradicting yourself. It's it's. I I I know I I know Bob. I know right where you're coming from. I was there once, and I was struggling with these things and uh, the tension. Right. Let me make one final comment, and I think the kids are already out, so we do need to wrap up. But uh, the um, this uh, Charles Spurgeon had a very helpful thing. So we're talking about God's sovereignty, and a lot of this class is about God's sovereignty, but there's human responsibility too, that we actually really do have to repent and believe. Because we believe God's sovereignty, we know we'll never repent and believe unless we're actually saved. So regeneration precedes repenting and believing. But what Spurgeon said is the doctrine of God's sovereignty and human responsibility are like railroad tracks that go vertically, that we will never understand the relation. They're both there, right? Human responsibility is there. Divine sovereignty is there. But we're not going to fully understand until heaven. So they're both truths that we embrace. Right, Jamie? Jaime? 
the difference. <laughs> Somehow I think that's a trick question. But uh, so one one is an apostate, and um, the the one that that goes away, if you really study that parable. So let me let me explain that really quick. Is that the one that goes astray? is the one that's really regenerate because Jesus even says to go after the one, I'm paraphrasing, the 99 people who don't need repentance or don't near, or 99 righteous, something along those lines. And so in other words, Christ will go after the elect and will get them and save them and bring them and the 99 that think they don't need any repentance. Um, Judas was, a, it's all fulfillment to Psalm 22, right? That he would that one of the disciples would betray him. And so I don't, there's not a parallel there. Are you saying, why didn't he go and save Judas? That wasn't part of his plan. Well, thank you all. That was good. We're trying to, we want to try to have some discussion, you know, with this and encourage our hearts. And, and boy, we've got something else to go home and to give God praise because we learned a little bit more about how he saved us. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your plan of salvation, something that we could have never put together. But we thank you, Lord, uh, for those that have gone before and studied your word and that we can even discuss these things. I pray for any that are struggling to, to grasp these com, um, uh, completely, that, that there would be much patience and that there would be much enlightenment and illumination of the Holy Spirit, um, that we could embrace these things. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.